0: All right, now take your Bible and open to John chapter 19. John 19, (coughs) starting in verse 28, and I'm just going to read the next three verses. (coughs) John 19, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful again to come this morning and hear from your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would again open our hearts <clears throat> and our minds to receive from your truth, uh, that we think deeply about uh, what we study this morning, and that our love for you and our love for Christ would would grow, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been with us, you see we're back in this portion of Scripture, John 19, and Lord willing, unless something happens that I don't expect, <laughs> I, I'm going to finish uh, up to verse 30 this morning. And um, But before we begin, again, I just want to welcome all the new students and parents and uh, uh, again we're, we're glad that you're a part of the fellowship here this morning uh, Jason and Stephanie Kelly which I see right here in the middle of the room head up our college and young adult ministry uh, along with several others in the uh, fellowship so you want to get to know them they do a tremendous job with that uh, group uh, They'll be, you'll be encouraged by them, you'll be challenged by them, you'll be loved by them if you become a part of that uh, ministry and a part of this fellowship and I know that if you're a college student, when you first move away from home, you're trying to figure out life on your own, perhaps for the first time. And one of the biggest issues that you need to give attention to is how to pick a church. <clears throat> and I know people are trying to figure this out. And so, uh, uh, and, and because people are trying to figure that out, I know that there may be somebody here this morning or the next hour who comes this time, and that's the only time I get with them. So I, I always uh, have that in mind on this day. And just for a variety of different circumstances and situations, you might not return. So I, I just want to, before we get into the text of John, uh, I always stop at this point of the, of the year and just kind of remind us what's important when considering a new church home. And, and again, it's our desire if the Lord would lead you here that you'd come and be a part of this fellowship while you're at the university and maybe even beyond. There's a number of people in our fellowship that have uh, come to the university, whether Cedarville or one of the other local universities, and. Uh, have stayed. They, they haven't left. They came, to, they came to school. They found their spouse. Some are still looking for their spouse. Um, and But they came and became a permanent part of our fellowship. <clears throat> and we're thankful for that. And, and I think choosing a church home is one of the most important decisions you're going to make in your entire life. I do believe it honestly could affect your uh, life, uh, your spiritual life over the next few years, e- even the rest of your life, and, and really the life of your descendants after you. And, and I realize, that, realize that's somewhat of an ominous statement, but I, real, I, I believe it's true. I, I think choosing a church home is, is a major life issue that you have to work through carefully. So what should you be looking for in a church home, a, a new church home? How do you choose a good church home to be a part of? Uh, and because you do need to be a part of a church. I was talking to somebody yesterday from out of town. They were saying <clears throat> in their area, they actually live in Colorado Springs, and they were saying that in their area they have noticed that after COVID, um, for a lot of the churches, most people never came back. That's a sad commentary. Most people never came back; they just stayed at home, which kind of tells you something of the spiritual condition uh, before COVID. And COVID just exposed that that you need to be a part of a good church. That's an absolute non-negotiable. And 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 online is not part of a good church. I'm thankful that we have the online capability for people who are older or out of town or sick that day or whatever, but that's not being part of the fellowship. And I love the church. And I love the church because Jesus Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. And I love this church. I love this fellowship. And I want you to grow in your love for Christ and your love for the church because the church is the most valuable thing on the entire planet. The most valuable thing on the entire planet, bought with the highest price, ever paid for anything, that being the shed blood of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the body of Christ. It's the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. It's the place where God's glory is most manifested on earth. It's the place where God's people come to hear God's word. Uh, the place where the word of God accomplishes everything that God desires for it to do. Uh, a word, uh, the, the word where God has promised that it'll never come back to him void. It's a place where God is always working in the hearts of his people. The hearts of his children to conform them more and more to the image of his son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the church is the one place on the earth where, the, where God is worshiped and praised and adored and, and exalted properly for who He is. Uh, the church is the place where uh, God's holiness and purity is modeled and, and lived out. Uh, the church is the place where true fellowship happens and true love occurs. So if you're going to make a monumental decision like this on what church do you find yourself to be in a permanent part of, uh, during at least your university years in the future, then you need to know what to look for. And while my remarks are obviously going to be directed primarily towards the college students, for those of us who have already made this our church home, I, I think it's always good to review and always good to be reminded uh, of how important uh, this situation is and, again, what we should be a part of in a local fellowship. So let me just give you some identifying markers of things that you would look for <coughs> in a faithful fellowship that you'd want to be a part of. And there's a variety of ways of... Uh, to do this. Somewhere I read recently of someone who used the analogy of choosing a church home like you buy a new house, and I thought that was a helpful kind of way to look at it, right? So if you're new, if you're going to buy a new house, and now if you're in college, you go, well, I never bought a new house. Well, one day you will. So what are you going to look at when you buy a new house? Well, the first thing you look at is the what? Foundation. Right? You better look at the foundation, make sure there's not a crack in the foundation. You better examine next the structure, how it's built, uh, you you want to look at how functional the house is. Does it fulfill the purposes for which it was designed? And then you check out the environment, right? What's the atmosphere like in the house? Is the house cold and gloomy, or is it warm and, and inviting? So we're going to use that picture, and we'll kind of work our way through this kind of quickly, and uh, we'll look at some of these issues. So what about the foundation? What do you want to find in a foundational truths for a church, right? Well, I'll tell you, number one, you better find a church that has a high view of Scripture, a high view of Scripture, a biblical emphasis on teaching and preaching, a, a, a church that promotes sound doctrine in the fellowship, and that promotes not only sound doctrine intellectually, but promotes sound doctrine being put into practice in the lives of the believers. Do they actually live out what they profess? Right? Do they live out what they teach is the idea. You want to find a church that holds to a strong view of the full inspiration, complete inerrancy, and total infallibility of the Word of God you want to find a church that holds the biblical authority that upholds and supports scripture alone as being ultimately authoritative for the life of the church and for every believer so a church that holds in the absolute sufficiency of the word of god for all matters of life and godliness equipping the saints spiritual growth guidance counseling ministry a church that holds to the sufficiency of the scripture that actually believes that the bible has the answers for all of life and godliness in the face of a world that's fallen in the face of a world that has all kinds of problems and the word is sufficient that helps us uh, uh, to work towards obedience and righteous living in all of our life so again the sufficiency of the scripture find a church that again not only promotes sound doctrine that really stands on sound doctrine Uh, a church that holds to a literal six-day creation to the virgin birth to the deity of jesus christ to the depravity of man to a proper understanding of Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, and bodily resurrection. Find a church that teaches that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A church that believes in the literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that practices ordinances uh, that God has left, right? Baptism and communion. And There's a lot of churches that don't do any of these things, don't believe in any of the things I've already said, and a lot of churches that don't practice uh, baptism and communion. Well, they're not really churches, but they call themselves churches, large gatherings of, of people. You want to find a, a fellowship that's actually committed to the Word of God and, and lives out uh, what God commands. Find a church that has a high view of God, that believes in the supremacy of God over all things, and all things means all things, even the sovereignty of God in all, spa- all aspects of salvation. A church that really desires to honor God with their lives, uh, that realizes that their view of God really affects everything every aspect of their life. Proverbs 9:10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You you need to you need to treat God with reverence. God is not your homeboy. He's not your buddy, he's not your pal. He's the most high God. He can't be treated frivolously or trivially uh, or, or casually. The most high God is to be feared, reverenced. You need to understand that. and You need to understand and appreciate His holiness. You need to have an absolute reverence for the person of God. Because when a person has a high view of the person of God, everything else in their life tends to fall into the proper place. So again, we all need to take God seriously. Find a church that has a high view of Christ. A high view of Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, I would recommend you choose... Uh, The church of which you would be a member and the pastor in whom you would hear by this one thing. How much of Christ is there in that church and how much of the savor of Christ is there in that ministry? You need to find a church that's in love with the person of Jesus Christ. Paul told the Colossians, Colossians chapter two, verse eight, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, for in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head of over he is the head over all rule and authority. I absolutely guarantee you, all across this country. There are a lot of people in the so-called church, quote-unquote church today, that are being taken out and being taken captive by the philosophies of men. There are a lot of people who call themselves pastors who have fully embraced worldly philosophies of men, and they brought their worldly philosophies in through the front door and tried to put somewhat of a Christian veneer over top of, uh, uh, over top of them. And what they do by trying to cater to the world, to cater to the culture, is they really take people away from the glory and the sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ. When Christ is all you need. And what you need is a deeper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And that deeper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ will cause you to grow deeper in your knowledge of him and grow in a deeper relationship with him. Because the more you know him, the more you love him. The more you know him, the more you love him. And that will affect every single aspect of your life. Therefore, you need to find a church that's committed to expository preaching. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, you need to hear his voice. You You need to hear his voice proclaimed from the text of the Scripture so that you can know him better. You don't need to hear men's opinions. An expositional preaching in its simplest is preaching that is focused on explaining the meaning of the Scripture in its historical grammatical context. It's preaching that is uh, first uh, uh, focused on teaching that exposes the intended meaning of the biblical text uh, by the authors of the Scripture and that's presented in a relative and practical way that results in a a transformed and changed lives. But what expositional preaching does is rather than take the Bible and bring it to the modern day, what expositional preaching does is it takes the modern day and brings it back to the text of the Scripture, to the time of the Bible. And it creates the original setting of the, the text. And by doing that, the Word becomes a living event. And by taking the modern person back to the culture of the Scripture, we can understand truth biblically as that was understood by the original hearers And then apply that truth in our day, in the life, in the time in which we live. It's a tremendous mistake, and people make it all the time. It's a tremendous mistake to ask the question, what does that text mean to me? And and not being disparaging, but that's a lot of Bible studies. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? How did you feel about it? Well, it's completely irrelevant. We need to know what it means before we know how to apply it, right? We need to understand what the text actually says and what it actually means before we can make any personal application. And I think expositional preaching does that. It's important because when you're... We faithfully follow the Word of God. The expositor deals with text after text after text, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book by book. It, it results in a, a body of a work or a collected body of knowledge once you sit under expositional preaching where the whole counsel of God is addressed. It doesn't allow you to take verses out of context. It doesn't allow you to skip controversial subjects uh, uh, as topical preaching does. And the reality of the fact is you don't need warm stories and entertainment. You don't need short sermons that are crammed full of spicy illustrations, humor, and contemporary cultural relevance that that caters to your felt needs and demands nothing of you. What you need is Christ. And it's God's Word that takes you to the person of Jesus Christ. And you need to hear God speak through His Word. You don't need soft preaching. Around here you'll hear often, if you stay, that soft preaching produces hard hearts. And hard preaching produces soft hearts. Because hard biblical preaching forces us to examine ourselves in the light of the Scripture to see if we line up. It breaks down our pride and selfishness and our self-centeredness. It brings us into the submission to the Word of God. It makes us desire to glorify God and to worship Him. On the other hand, soft preaching makes people hard. Soft preaching only superficially wounds. It, it feeds people's self-centered preoccupations. And in the end, it produces people that are self-centered and subjective. You don't need soft preaching. You need to have your flesh slain. You need to have the new created you in Christ raised up and challenged to, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness and, to, uh, and for a deeper relationship with God who towers over this passing pitiful world that is in the midst of perishing and expositional preaching alone accomplishes that every word from the bible comes from the very mouth of god the very breath of god therefore every word of the bible demands our careful attention we don't edit god here god wants to reveal himself to men and he's done that through the text of the scripture does it through the bible and for the most part around here, whether it's from the pulpit or uh, in a Sunday school class or in a home Bible studies, because we have lots of those going on, midweek fellowship groups, we just work our way through one book after another, through one book after another, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, year after years, And we go slow around here. This morning's sermon in John 19 is the 138th, just in case you're counting. And we're not even done yet, right? I honestly believe that slower is better than faster because slower allows you to work carefully through the text, and the slower you go, it allows you to go deep into the text. And deep biblical preaching produces deep biblical thinking, biblical literate, biblically rich individuals who develop a deep biblical understanding and a love for the persons of God and Christ. Shallow preaching only produces shallow individuals, shallow people. Find a church that, that puts a preeminence on the Word of God, not on what men think, but what God says. Find a church that puts a high uh, emphasis on worship a- of God, uh, and not just by singing, but worship of God in all of life. God glorifying in all aspects of life, every aspect of life. Uh, uh, we we gather, gather corporately to worship on, on a Sunday, but the reality is we should be worshiping, as they say, 24-7. I mean, all of life really should be an act of worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So all of our life is to be lived to the glory of God. If you're not doing that up to this point, then you need to stop and ask why you're doing what you're doing. What's the purpose for why you do, whatever it is you do? It needs to be to glorify God. And, and let me address the issue of, of music, because that's a, a big thing in the, in the modern church. Uh, The the Bible calls us to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, Jesus himself, John 4, verse 23. An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So true worship is a response to the truth that God has revealed about himself on the page of the Scripture. So if we're going to have true worship and worship the God of truth, then we have to under, have a proper understanding of who He is. Again, that's why we put such a high emphasis on the preaching of the, of the Word of God and put such a high emphasis on, on the Word itself. Now here at Cornerstone, we predominantly sing hymns. That doesn't mean we never sing choruses. Sometimes we do. Uh, but we place a high emphasis not only on doctrinal truth, which hymns usually have a higher uh, emphasis on, but we preach also, or we put a high emphasis also on corporate worship, congregational singing. I'm not saying anything derogatory towards anybody else that has different kinds of worship style. But I want you to understand why we do what we do here at, uh, at Cornerstone. It's with great intentionality. Praise choruses, which are very popular, obviously in the day in which we live in the church. Uh, for the most part, praise choruses are just simple personal experiences, expressions of worship. And for the most part, praise choruses are not very deep. Uh, Theologically, there's not a lot of biblical truth in most praise choruses. Praise choruses tend to be written with catchy tunes and musical scores, and and the the music is driven by the instruments of the band. Uh, Whereas in congregational singing, the high emphasis the high emphasis on hymns, uh, and doctrinal truth and corporate expression, the music is driven by you. You are the music. It's the voice, your voice. That's why we encourage you to sing loud here. If you can't sing well, sing loud. That's my motto. Right. Sing aloud. Now, again, I'm not speaking about anybody else. I'm not talking about praise choruses being bad. We understand that there's some very good praise choruses, just like we understand there are, not some so, there are some not so good hymns. All right, I got that. But a general rule hymns tend to be more biblical. And they're more, here's the word, deliberately didactic. They teach. They, they teach. Uh, the hymns tend to be deliberately uh, more didactic than praise choruses. And sadly, we live in a time where a lot of, the, uh, in, in the modern church, classic hymnody is in danger of being lost because most churches don't sing hymns anymore. We sing a lot of old hymns. We sing a lot of modern hymns. Uh, the Gettys, uh, Stuart Townsend, Matt uh, Papa, and other modern hymn writers with ga- great doctrinal content because they help us to think deeply, more deeply on the Scripture, more deeply on the truth uh, of God in Christ, and that's what we want. So when it comes to music in the church, Colossians 3, 16 tells us, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So a lot of what is sung in the church today and a lot of what is written is really written to stir the emotion. It fails really to carry out the mandate to teach and admonish. And a lot of what's uh, written and sung in most of the modern church today is very repetitive, and that repetition is built in intentionally into the praise songs. Uh, It's written in intentionally because it wants to put the intellect into a passive state while the worshiper musters up the emotion and and as much emotion as possible. And and that's really completely opposite to what the Scripture commands. We're to worship through song and all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. We want to inform you, not manipulate you. We, we want our music to stir the emotion. Yes, that's true, but feelings can't lead worship. Our minds have to be challenged by the truth, encouraged by the truth, informed by the truth. So if we're going to sing about how great our God is, can't sing that line over and 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 over. You know the song, right? Unless we have some concept of why our God is great. right? We, we're going to sing about how great our God is. We need to know why our God is great not just say the words. We're written to some kind of music again that stirs us into some kind of emotional frenzy. So you're not gonna find any 7-Eleven songs here. Seven words repeated 11 times. We don't do that. So when you look for a church, you look at the foundation. <clears throat> you find a church where that is absolutely committed to the building up the entire ministry on the word of truth in all aspects of the, of the ministry a place that has a high view of the Scripture, a place that has a high view of God, a high view of Christ, that preaches expositionally. Because again, we all need to hear from the Lord. We need to hear from the Lord of the church. We need to hear the Word of God. And again, a place that puts a high view of worshiping God in both spirit and truth. Second thing you look at is the structure, right? Look at the structure. Find a church that gives evidence that their ministry is in order, that their services have been planned, uh, the, uh, the services are planned, the teaching is planned, the administration is planned. The, the church has a, a, a church government that functions according to New Testament principles Excuse me, and commands. Find a church that practices biblical male leadership and, and biblical eldership where the leaders of the church are looking out for and shepherding and praying for the welfare of each member of the congregation. Male leadership is Biblical. And simply stated, the modern promotion of female so-called pastors is a direct attack on the authority of the Word of God. First Timothy 3.1 says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of the overseer or the bishop or the elder or the pastor-shepherd, depending on your translation, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, etc., 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Now, if God knows how to speak, and words mean anything, the text says what it says and means what it says. Paul says, "Do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over men." And then he links it right back to the creation, right? The, the, at the fall, God created the Adam. Or God created Adam first, and then the woman. You look at the leadership structure in Israel; it was always men, and not women. Men, women were not leaders. No woman had an ongoing prophetic ministry. No woman was a priest. No woman ever ruled as a queen over Israel. No woman ever wrote any of the Old Testament or New Testament texts. God gave spiritual responsibility for leadership to men. Just like he gave responsibility for the family and society to men to lead, likewise in the church leadership is male. And in the history of the church God has used predominantly men to lead his church. So the contemporary desires and contemporary non-biblical understanding of the role of women and the world should not be imported into the church. Godly gifted women who desire to honor the Lord and serve Him uh, is is a good thing, but women being quote-unquote pastors or quote-unquote elders is not biblical. I don't have time to get into it as much as I uh, would like just because of time, but the issue really is you just got to understand it's an attack on the authority of the Word of God. That's the battle. The whole transgender thing is an attack on the authority of the Word of God. That's where the battle line is. It's an attack on the authority of the Word of God, this women pastors, elders kind of stuff, it's a, and, and it's an issue of role and function. We need to obey the Word of God uh, and, and, and without making one inferior to the other. God calls both men and women to fulfill the roles and responsibilities that he's given to them. And, and the roles and functions are tied to the created order, not giftedness. God created the man first. He gave man headship. Then he created the woman to be his helper, And what we have to understand is helper, that title helper in the Bible is an exalted title. God called himself the helper of Israel, often in the Old Testament. Psalm 54, verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In fact, 16 out of the 19 times the word is used in the Old Testament describes God. And certainly God's not weak or inferior. Helper is a word of strength, a, a word of God-likeness, God's strength uh, The fact that he has what people lack. God is a helper, and man has been given by God a helper, a woman, because the woman has what the man lacks to lead. A believing woman is in full spiritual equal to a believing man, having value and dignity and honor and worth, created in the image of God as an image-bearer, co-equal in the, in the realm of salvation, yet a different role and a different function than the man. Again, she has, but that's his helper. She has that what he lacks to be complete. So man needs his helper. In the matters of ruling in the home and the church, again, God has established the headship of man. And again, there's just no such thing biblically as women pastors and women elders. You go, well, you know, I don't know. No, I'm just telling you, it's what the Bible says. We can't allow the culture to infect the church, and we can't allow the culture and, and us to, to go against uh, 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 the Word of God. And people say, well, you know, w- all Christianity do- does is put women down. That is not true whatsoever. The opposite, absolute opposite is truth. It's only biblical Christianity that has ever, biblical Christianity that's only ever uh, elevated the status of women to a position that they've never known in the ancient world, to a position that most women in the world today do not know or enjoy. Most women today, most women in the ancient time, were treated as nothing more than chattel, uh, as slave possessions, property owned by their husbands. Looked down upon as least, less than equal by men all around them. And Paul encouraged the women to, the women to learn. Jesus actually taught women. He, he spent time with women. Again, something the rabbis of his days would not do and something, again, all the world religions around that are apart from biblical Christianity won't even tolerate Again, we live in a time where the position of the woman and the culture is completely under attack and womanhood itself is under attack. Again, it's attacking the authority of the Word of God, but womanhood itself is under attack with all this transgender madness. And as part of that attack on the Word of God, it's really an attack on male leadership. Because male leadership just being male in the culture is looked down upon. Again, sadly, most of the modern church is confused over all these issues. The church has brought in modern, unbelieving mindset, setting aside the authority of the Word of God and its place has allowed a radical, unbiblical, anti-male, feminist agenda to enter into the church and create chaos and confusion. Again, regarding the role of men and women, ministry in the home, ministry in the church. An unbiblical agenda that encourages women to be bold and assertive and confrontive and independent, exert authority, take leadership roles, that do not belong to them biblically. Culture wants to blur the line, some kind of androgyny. Because it's utterly tragic for women. They're not well served to be cast into roles which God never intended them to be a part of. And again, it's only in the Word of God as God intended in His design for women uh, that God's intention for women can be found. It's only found in the Word of God. And it's only by obedience to the Word of God uh, that a woman can really realize her full potential and follow the plan of her creator, her designer, to give glory in the areas that God has called her to give glory in in a manner that God has called her to give glory. God has called women to the high privilege of bearing children, and then being the primary evangel, uh, the primary instrument of evangelism in, in their child's life to raise those kids, to love those kids, to teach them, to continually point them to the person of Jesus Christ, which is something that women can't do if they're not in the home, if they're outside the home. Righteousness is to be taught first and foremost, trained up in the home. And, and, and when the home fails, you see exactly what you see in the society all around us. The unrighteousness that is part of the society that we're a part of is in part because there's unrighteousness in the home. It's not being taught and trained in the home. So women have a tremendous responsibility, a tremendous gift uh, of God to be the primary evangelist in the home. Again, male leadership has to see, oversee the whole thing. Find a church that practices church discipline. I, I, I think to myself, like I picked every subject that's so unpopular in the world today, right? in the modern church. Church discipline, you've got to be kidding me. We don't do that anymore. That's so old school. Yeah, I know. Not practiced much. But it's important because the Scripture commands it. Because holiness is important in God's fellowship. And again, not, in, not that anyone in any fellowship is perfect. We're not saying that. But the purpose of church discipline is always restorative. It's always motivated out of love to call people back that are erring and uh, going the wrong direction. Call them back to righteous living so they might be restored to the fellowship, enjoy the blessings of the fellowship and the blessings of communion with Christ. Church that practices church discipline holds a higher regard for the word of God than the opinion of men. Holds a high regard for holiness uh, of which it expects of its members. Because the church is the called out ones, right? The called out ones of the society, separated from the world. We're not perfect, I, I understand that, but we're not to act like the world or live like the world or, or look like the world. We're the separated ones. In the book of Proverbs, it speaks repeatedly of discipline within the family context. And the father is given the responsibility to discipline his children. Proverbs 13:24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. If parents fail to discipline their children, it's evidence that they really don't love their children. And some people come along and say, well, no, 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 I love my child child so much, I, I can't discipline them. No, that's not true, you don't love your child. No discipline means you do not love your child enough. Right, Because the children are, are to be disciplined by the, the truth of the Word of God and, 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 and loved through that discipline. Let's, if you can't teach your kids to obey in your home and your kids go out in society and they don't obey the rules in society, guess what happens to them? They get locked up. That's where people go that don't obey the rules. They get locked up and put in prison. And again, how many, I always ask people this question, like how many, how many young people do you think uh, set out their life to spend the rest of it in prison? And it's like, well, nobody does that. Yeah, I got that, but people end up there all the time because they've not obeyed in the small things in the home, and the home is not encouraged and demanded obedience, and the church is, and the home is not uh, loved by disciplining the child. This is the word of God. We tell our kids that all the time. You don't have any responsibility except to be obedient to the to, to your mother and father. That's it. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to fix a car. You don't have to worry about the roof. All you have to do is obey. And then every time you don't obey, it's an opportunity to share the gospel with them because their their lack of obedience shows the rebellion in their heart and why they need Christ. So discipline in the church, discipline in the family of God is the same picture, the same principles in the discipline in, in the home. It's necessary. It's always a manifestation of love if it's handled properly. So again, how do you find a good church? What do you look for? You look at the foundation. You look at the structure. Then you look to see how functional the house is, right? Does it fulfill the purpose for what it was made? Uh, does the church emphasize worship of God in all things everywhere? Is the church practicing the one another? Is loving one another? Caring for one another? Admonishing uh, one another? Is the fellowship involved in serving? Serving each other. Serving each other uh, here and outside the walls. Uh, you need to find a, a church where every member of the congregation is exercising their spiritual gifts in, in the body of Christ uh, because God has given everybody who's saved in the body of Christ a gift that he's to exercise or she is to exercise for the spiritual good of, uh, of those around them. So you need to find a place that, that people are actually exercising their spiritual gifts and where you can do likewise. You need to find a place where you can serve Christ's body and, and learn to love each other and, and, and do whatever you do to the glory of God as you serve need to be actively involved in serving one another in the body of Christ. Don't, don't go to some fellowship, whether it's this one or someone else. Don't go to a fellowship for four years and just hang out. Become invisible. You have to be actively involved because God's given you a gift for the benefit of uh, the fellowship. Find a place, a church that places a high emphasis on evangelism as one of its mo- uh, primary functions, home and foreign. We just brought back uh, eight uh, individuals just a week ago. Uh, from, uh, from Japan that had gone there on, on a mission trip. We, 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 we think that domestic and foreign evangelism is, is important. So you want to have a place that, that puts an emphasis on, on the Word of God to reach out with the gospel in obedience to the person of Christ. So you look at the foundation, you look at the structure, you see how it functions, and then finally you check out the environment. Right? What's the atmosphere like in the place? Is it distant, cold, or, or is it warm, is it inviting? You want to be a part of a church that's inviting, obviously. You want to be a part of a church that genuinely loves each other, that genuinely cares for each other, that ministers to the needs of each other, that is gracious towards each other. A church that's not caught up in any kind of legalism or legalistic tendencies. A church that practices a sincere faith and places a high emphasis on unity, a place where you can feel like you belong. Now, as no one perfect, no one person is perfect. There's no perfect church. I got that. We're all in process. But you want to find a church that has emphasis on these things, kind of places a balanced view on on all of these different issues. Uh, Again, a church that utmost its greatest desire is to honor Christ, to see Christ be made much of, where, again, people genuinely love each other. Now, I know that's an awful lot to kind of give you in a a shotgun fashion. Uh, I I think uh, most people would say fire hose fashion. But I I just want to encourage you to, to think about choosing a church. It's a great decision significant decision. And we hope it's cornerstone. But again, we realize for a variety of different reasons it may not be. This might not be a right fit for you. But if uh, this is the first and the last time we meet, God bless you to live a good and a godly life, right? So what life is life if it's not a godly life. So live a good and a godly life. Honor the Lord in all that you do. And if we can ever help you or serve you in any way, then let me know. Last thing before we get to the text. If you're first time off into college, call your mom more than you think you should call your mom. Call your mom. She needs to hear from you. All right, she needs to hear that you're thinking of her, you love her, you're thankful for her. Call your mom. All right, now back to John 19. This morning you get two, two, for, two for the prize one. Did I mention not only we go slow, we go long? Did I mention that one? You'll You'll adjust. People always say to me when they first started coming here, You talk too fast. And I go, No, you hear too slow. I'll train you. You'll get me. I have a lot to say in a short amount of time. John 19. And again, if this is your first time with us this morning and you want to kind of catch up, you might want to go back and listen to some of the previous sermons because we've been working our way through this text for a long time. We spent a lot of time looking at the sham trials of Christ that the Lord went through, and we saw that there's never been a greater mischarriage of a justice, more evil done to one man than it was done to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely innocent of any crime. We've been working our way through John's account of the crucifixion. Last week, we took a detour. We went over to Matthew 27, and we looked at the event that John does not record in his version of the events of the cross, which was the darkness that appeared at the cross. So if you missed last Lord's Day in our study, you might want to go back and pick, up, pick that up. I think you'll be highly encouraged by it. Informed, challenged, maybe come to a different position than perhaps the common one that most people hold to. Because in the darkness that comes at the cross in those three hours from noon to 3 p.m., God's not turning his back upon Christ. The reality is, as we saw in the Scripture, God's actually showing up in the darkness. Christ, again, absolutely guiltless, without sin, And in the moments of those hours of darkness, in those three hours, God is pouring out his wrath upon the sinless one for our sin. God making him who knew no sin to be the sin bearer, that we might become forgiven and granted the righteousness, forgiven and granted the righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. It was a fascinating study, the darkness. Uh, We pulled a lot of material out of the Old Testament. Again, I think you'd be challenged and encouraged by looking deeper at those three hours of darkness that God actually at Calvary has shown up to unleash eternal wrath upon the sinless substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. He punishes, God punishes his son Christ, so he will not have to punish us. And just as God showed up in the darkness at the Abrahamic covenant, just as God showed up in the darkness at the Mosaic covenant, God showed up at the, in the darkness in the new covenant. We went through all of that. The shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is there, three hours Christ, absorbing eternal hell for all who would repent and believe upon him. Now, to get us back here to the text and back into the flow of the story, I told you the, no, uh, the numerous times that John writes for a specific reason. He writes that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. That's his purpose statement. So when he looks at all the events of the life of Christ and he's looking here at the events of the cross, he's not looking at the evil and the wickedness of men. He's not even necessarily pointing out and spending a lot of time looking at the physical or the spiritual uh, suffering of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's we've kind of spent a little bit of time looking at those things, he's looking at the person of Christ himself. And he's looking specifically here in this uh, situation of the cross for aspects of the events of the cross that magnify Christ, that glorify Christ, that point to the deity uh, of the person of Jesus Christ. We've already previously worked our way through three of them. So again, sorry if you're first time, you're going to have to go back and pick that up. But first we saw the glory of Christ in the events of the cross in the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scripture. This happened so the Old Testament Scripture might be fulfilled. Second, we saw the glory of Christ in the superscription written by Pilate and placed above the head of Christ on the cross. And it was the Father attesting to the reality of who that person is, the Father attesting to the innocence of His dear Son, making sure, again, that the entire world, that all the readers of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew could see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the King of the Jews being executed there on that cross. The third aspect we looked at was the selfless love of the person of Christ. Again, Christ physically suffering beyond our comprehension uh, and still he's mindful of those around him whom he loves. Most specifically, his mother cares for her. Wants to make sure that she is cared for after his death. Which brings us to the last issue, the supremacy of Christ or the sovereignty of Christ expressed in the death of Christ. Listen, When you look at the death of Christ, you need to understand that Jesus Christ is sovereignly in charge of his death. And you'll see that in the text. He's in charge of his death. So again, for the context, let me just run back up real quickly. Let me just read, starting in verse 16, to kind of bring us all back here into the mindset of of the text. John 19, verse 16. So then he delivered him to to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out, bearing his own cross, to the place... Of a skull which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha there they crucified him with two uh, men on either uh, side, with two other men one on either side and Jesus in between Pilate wrote the inscription also and put it on the cross it was written Jesus the Nazarene the king of the Jews therefore this inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city it was written in Hebrew Latin and Greek and the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate do not write the king of the Jews but that he said, I am the King of the Jews, Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. soldiers, therefore, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also a tunic, and the tunic was seamless, woven in one plate, and one piece. They said therefore to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, and decide who it shall be. And the script that the scripture might be fulfilled, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there was standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the, disciples whom, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Remember, I told you there's nothing harsh, nothing disrespectful, nothing uh, discourteous about Jesus calling her woman. Uh, he, he loves her. He loves Mary, and he's trying to take care of her, even though he's dying. But when he uses that term, ter- that term "woman," he's helping her to remember the fact that no longer does she have that kind of relationship with him in the flesh. No longer is the relationship a mother to a son, but now she, like all people, will know him as the Savior of the world. That's the relationship. So again, in the midst of this most horrific scene of hatred and hatred and horrible suffering. Again, again, once again, Christ demonstrates his compassion, uh, his love for those who are his own. Something, listen, he's done his entire ministry, but most especially beginning the night of his betrayal. He knows what's going to happen. The night of his betrayal, Thursday night, remember he stopped and he washed the feet, the dirty feet of the disciples, in a humble act of love reserved for the lowliest of slaves. And you remember he continues, that was in chapter 13, and he continues to pour out his love from the top of chapter 14 where the disciples are very troubled at heart because he's leaving. John 14, when he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. and my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So he's encouraging them, and, and do not be troubled. Believe me. I'm going. I'm coming back. And then he loved them by sending them. He promised to send them the person of the the the, the Holy Spirit, the Helper. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then he then he encouraged them more by saying, Look, I'm going to give you peace. Don't fear. I, I want you to have my peace. I want you to be filled with my joy. And, and then he said, look, no greater love has this than a man lay down his life for another, and that's how much I love you. And he just com- continually repeats, and, and by word and by demonstration, the love that he has for his own. Chapter 17, we spent a lot of time through that. He prayed for them, prayed for their protection. So again, in the context of a, a scene full of horror and hatred, Jesus just continues to manifest his compassion, his love for those who belong to him as he's going willingly to the cross. Although the contemplation of the cross, the suffering that was going to be there both physically and spiritually, you might remember the Garden of Gethsemane caused him to agonize to such a point that he sweat great drops, drops of blood, as it were. So the agony, the suffering's incomprehensible, but he loves those who are his own. He continues, even up to this last moment, to show concern for them, uh, expressing compassion and sympathy uh, for... Uh, those whom he loved. Again, a compassion and a sympathy beyond our comprehension. Then 28, verse 28. After this, after this continual demonstration of love and compassion, after this caring intentionally for his mother, after the darkness. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, and so they put a sponge of sour wine uh, upon the branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. So Jesus is hung on the cross for six hours. Again, the suffering that he has experienced is unparalleled. Nevertheless, his mind is perfectly clear. And he's still in charge of his faculties. He's still demonstrating his omniscience because Jesus, again, is God come in the flesh. He knows all things. He knows the plan exactly. He knows every detail that needs to be accomplished. He knows the time, his time, is, uh, 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 the time of his end is near. He knows that, that for the scripture to be fulfilled, he must die. And he knows that there's one more prophetic scripture yet to be accomplished. Therefore, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Back in Psalm 22, which David's psalm of the cross depicts the suffering of the Messiah uh, on the cross, part of that suffering, part of that torture, uh, physical suffering of, of and the torture of crucifixion was thirst. Uh, psalm 22, verse 15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, as, uh, and thou didst uh, lay me in the dust of death. Right? Thirst, part of the torture of, of crucifixion. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, again, he knows There's only one remaining prophecy, needs to be fulfilled. He says, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. That comes out of Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now the Septuagint uses the same Greek word translated sour wine. So they they gave me uh, 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 this uh, sour wine, this uh, uh, vinegar to drink. Jesus knows all things, right? It has to be accomplished. Again, the last thing uh, he knows, that if he says, I am thirsty, because that's what the Scripture says uh, will uh, happen, that will prompt the soldiers to give him a drink. And they do so. Obviously, the soldiers aren't consciously aware that they're fulfilling Scripture. And they're not even giving him a drink for the purposes of compassion, showing compassion to Christ because of his suffering, because their goal is to increase his suffering. They want to increase his time languishing there on the cross. So they want to increase the Lord's torment by prolonging his life as long as they can. That's why they act. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. And they also put a, they put a sponge uh, full of sour wine upon the branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Now earlier in the crucifixion they had given him, they tried to give him gall to drink, but he wouldn't drink it because gall is somewhat of a sedative. And it's a beverage, that beverage that contained gall uh, was used to deaden the pain of a person who is to be executed so they wouldn't struggle so much as being when they're being nailed to the cross. But again, Jesus refused that first uh, that drink. He refused the, 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 the uh, drink that had gall in it. And many theologians have speculated the reason that Jesus refused that drink is because he wanted to drink the cup of the Father's wrath against sin in the fullest way so his senses would experience it in the full. Put a sponge of sour wine up to uh, upon a branch of hyssop and the uh, hyssop is a reed about 18 inches long. So if you've got this thing in your mind that you know the cross is way off the ground, that's not true. It's very close to the ground. It's kind of a, another picture of ironic horror, right? Suspended not high and lifted up, but just off the ground. But off the ground, can't touch the ground, can't get off the cross. So it's probably not too far off the ground. In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge Full of the sour wine, upon the branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. Verse thirty. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, "It is finished." Tell us, that. In um, Matthew twenty-seven, verse fifty; Mark fifteen, verse thirty-seven. In those verses, it actually says that the Lord shouted those words. He cried aloud. It's not the disparaging, uh, despairing cry of a helpless martyr. It's the sound of triumph. It's a proclamation of a victor. It is finished. It's all accomplished, all paid for. What's finished? Well, the redemptive work that the Father had given him to accomplish, to atone for sin. The work that God had sent him into the world to defeat Satan, to render him powerless. To fulfill all God's righteous demands of his law. All of it had been satisfied. God's wrath against sin appeased. Every prophecy fulfilled, and the completion of Christ's work of redemption means that nothing needs to be done. Nothing else needs to be done. Nothing can be added to it. It is finished. Salvation is complete in Christ. Salvation is not a joint effort between God and man. It's entirely the work of God's grace, appropriated by man through faith, brought to fruition by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Again, verse 30, when Jesus therefore received the sour wine, he shouted, crowds out, he cried out, it is finished. And that's important because it demonstrates the fact that he still has physical strength within him. He's still physically strong. He cries out. He's not slowly fading away. He's not, uh, he still has enough strength and vitality to, to shout with a loud voice. He's not to the point of exhaustion. And again, he wants to make it clear what he has done. So by yelling, again, he demonstrates the fact that he still has the resources physically to stay alive if he chooses. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said it is finished. In Luke's a version of this, uh, Luke uh, 23, verse 46, he says at that moment, Christ says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When Jesus, therefore, received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Note what it says. Words are important. He bowed his head. Up to this point, the clear intimation of these words that he must have been holding holding his head erect, upright, because he is the king of the Jews. He's not some impotent sufferer whose head is helplessly bobbing forward, laying on his chest. If so, he would have no occasion to choose to bow his head. He calmly, reverently bows his head because, again, this is no mere man hanging on the cross. He bowed his head, here it is, and gave up his spirit. Paradidim, gave up. He gave into the hands of the others, what, uh, to another, is what that word means, gave up. He gave into the hands of, one, to another person's hands of power. And again, in, uh, in Luke's version says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. J.C. Rowell says he delivered up his spirit. He says this is a voluntary action. He delivered up his spirit of his own free will because this is the hour that he chose to do so. So again, Jesus' life is not just ebbing out. He's not just expiring. He's not just weakly gasping his last dying breath. He is handing over his life. He is sending away voluntarily his spirit. Again, this is what John wants you to see. He wants you to see that Jesus is demonstrating his sovereignty over the event of his death. Because you'll remember Jesus said back in John chapter 10, verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it again. Verse 18, no one has it taken from me, but I lay it down by my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This command my street received from my father. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, Jesus dies sooner than most men died on the cross. In, in fact, Pilate was surprised when Joseph of Arimathea uh, comes and asks for the body he couldn't believe it so he sends some, midi- some men over there to check to make sure that uh, he's really dead because it was so abnormal for someone to die so soon because the truth is the Lord still has the power to live if he desires to do so but again John by using that specific phraseology he wants you to bring your attention to the person of Jesus Christ and see that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things even his death even the sending away of his Spirit. Listen, you got to think about that one because we, we just pass over that one too easy. Nobody has the power like that. Nobody has that kind of power to give up your life whenever you want. Just like no mere man has the power to raise himself from the dead, no mere man has the ability to choose the moment of his death. And I already know what you're thinking but you're not thinking about it correctly. Someone wrote this. He said you can shoot yourself, but you've given the power of death to the bullet. You can take poison, but you've given the power over life to the poison. You can throw yourself off a tall building, but you've given your life over to the power of the fall when you come in contact with the ground. No mere man... Of his own will can determine the moment of his own death just as no mere man has the power to defeat death by way of resurrection except this one man the Lord Jesus Christ because he is no mere man he's God incarnate power over death power over life nobody is taking Jesus's life from him on the cross He is voluntarily laying it down as a willing sacrifice, standing in our place, taking the punishment that is due us out of his tremendous love for us so that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be reconciled unto God. Therefore, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mean, what an amazing Savior, huh? What an amazing grace, amazing love demonstrated by the Father and the Son. So again, as we look at the death of Christ, we remind ourselves that the death he died, he died for our sins as our substitute. His death for our life, we might live. And we who believe on Christ shall live forever. Sinners, though we are, we live because Christ died the innocent for the guilty. Satan can't drag us away from that eternal life. Second, death can't harm us. Paul in the book of Romans says, no one, no thing can separate us from that kind of love. No one can separate us from this blessed person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who paid our debt of sin, the one who gave us eternal life. The hymn writer says correctly, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me, right? Amazing love. How can it be? John wants you to look at Christ See the magnificence of the Christ everywhere in his life, even at the cross. Our Father, our God, we're thankful for this time that we've spent together, this hour looking at your word. We thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the great picture, great reality of the person of Jesus Christ and all that he's done. The glory of Christ. Help us to focus on Christ always not the ugliness and the wickedness of men here at the cross or even the day in which we live, but help us to look at the glory of Christ. Do your work in our hearts, we pray. Help these uh, students choose wisely a church that loves you and loves your truth, a church where they can be a part of and serve and give you the honor that you so richly deserve. I pray in Christ's name, amen.